Well, Rick put this on me this morning and said, you're it. So after learning about a year and a half ago when I preached that I had pushed down a Afghan boy off a bicycle in Jesus' name, uh, it took a little while to have them have me come up again. So buckle up. Here we go. I'm not sure either one of us are ready for this, but we're in the book of James again. So we've been how many weeks in this book? You know, maybe eight or or, or ten weeks now going through uh, a significant uh, a letter that James wrote. So uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, Andy and I, my wife, uh, we have been talking about uh, kind of a concept, a perspective uh, of the Christian life that we uh, that, that we really needed to. I think we need to apply to, to this book. Uh, you know, when you when you get to know Christ and you follow Him, whether you are a child or whether you are an adult, I was 16 years old for me. You know, we we go on a road on a journey from that point, and. Uh, <clears throat> And it's the process that we sometimes get backwards. And so that's a little bit of what I want to talk about today is the process of being a Christian and how we sometimes get that, get some things backwards. So if the, if you want to throw this first slide on, there's really two perspectives of the the Christian life. Often we come in, we believe in both of these perspectives, it starts with belief, but then what we often do is we behave next. We're told all the things that you're supposed to do or not do. Uh, and, and then we have a sense in perspective one of belonging. We've believed, we've behaved, we, we look like a Christian now, and then, and then we, we belong. Perspective two is where I think we need to go. And I'm going to circle back to this at the end. Uh, but we believe first, then automatically we belong. And then after that, we become, and then behavior comes last. It comes, it's important, but that's the perspective that that we need to have. So you can take that slide down. We'll come back to that um, at the end. So let's get our bearings on on where we've been in James so far. All right? So if you're taking notes, um, uh, you can do your best to follow along here. But we've got in chapter 1... Uh, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. We've got responding to trials with, pers- with perspective. Uh, we've got do not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Uh, getting to the end of chapter 1. So doing the word, not just listening. We've got in chapter 2 a whole passage about favoritism and how the rich were treating the poor at that time. You stand there, sit on the floor by my feet. And we become judges of one another. And, and, and so there's a, a message about treating people with love and respect, not favoritism. And then we go through at the end of chapter 2 talking about probably the most well-known portions of Scripture. Faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by what I do. So we are talking about showing our faith by our deeds. So James is a, he's a man of action. 
And so you'd think, this is, this is where we get a lot. A lot of people call the James like the Proverbs of the New Testament because it doesn't really flow in a, in a real easy-to-follow message. It's just do this and do that and stop doing this and why, do you, why are you doing this? And uh, at the beginning of the next uh, message on James starts with what causes fights and quarrels among you? So he, he goes on and on about, about how we're to behave. And so that's why I want to make sure we get some perspective here when we're going through this. But, but then last week, Ryan goes into ch- beginning of chapter 3. So I'm going to talk about the end of chapter 3. The beginning of chapter 3 is the power of the tongue in our words. And so he, he kind of changed gears at that point to illustrate the power of, of, of words, our tongue, and, and, and the good and the bad that can come from it. So he kind of gets into this, this either-or uh, element to to the passage, and we're going to go into another either-or today. So at the end of, of uh, where Ryan was preaching last week, he says in, in verse 10 of chapter 3, out of the, or no, first to start with 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So you think, wow, so which is it? Are we a salt spring trying to produce fresh water? Are we a fig tree bearing olives? There's this, are we one or the other? It doesn't really, he doesn't answer it there. And all I can think of when I read something like this is that God somehow knows how to to draw straight lines with crooked branches. With God, all things are possible. So this sort of sets us up for what we'll read today. We've got six verses to read. So if you have a Bible with you, open it up because I'm going to go verse by verse through this. Or if you've got it on your phone, open up. And, and let's read the six verses here because I'm going to spend some time in each one of these. And let's see if you can find the kind of the either or element uh, in this. And it starts with verse 13, James three thirteen. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show up by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. So right now I'm going to lay out the problem and at the end we're going to lay out the solution. So if we can get the slide up that tells us about our problem. So the problem is this. There's a battle within us between the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. Are we kind of like a salt spring trying to produce fresh water? We have this this, this constant dynamic of a battle that's, that's always happening in our lives. So that's what I want you to be thinking of throughout the time here, is this problem. The battle within us between the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. So let's, let's unpack the passage a little here. In verse 13, he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. 
So let them show it by their good life. Now, in the King James Version, it uses the word for life. It uses the word conversation. An older word, an older English word that meant not just we think of just our words, right? Which is, of course, what we've just finished talking about at the end of the middle part of chapter 3 of James on the tongue. So really, this is both. Let them show it by their good life by deeds that come from the humility that comes from wisdom. So here we have an account of wisdom in this verse, and it's distinguishing marks. We've got, you know, you can't, you can't, um, you can't have wisdom without laying up a store of knowledge. So you've got knowledge, but you can't value that knowledge if you don't know how to rightly apply the knowledge in your life. So these two are really inseparable. It's not just knowing stuff. It's, it's knowing how to use it, use it in, your, in your life. And, and so the, the good life, the conversation and deeds, they're really this. They're words and actions that in, they do three things. They inform, they heal, and they do good. Seems pretty simple, right? They inform, they heal, they do good with, with your words, with your actions. Is that mar- are, are you marked by that, that kind of wisdom? And, and so here we're just kind of getting a, the, the distinguishing marks of what, of what wisdom is. But it also says that it's, it's, it's by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So humility is a huge word here. So I'm going to borrow from a Welsh minister and commentator from the early 1700s, Matthew Henry. So I don't know, it's probably going to be kind of packly, uh, tightly packed in here, but I don't know if you can read it. I'm going to read this to you. So this is what Matthew Henry says. He says, true wisdom may be known by the humility, or, or he uses the word meekness. So meekness and humility are often interchangeable here. So, but he says, I'm going to use the word wisdom or uh, humility. True wisdom may be known by the humility of the spirit and temper. It is a great instance of wisdom prudently to bridle our own anger and patiently to bear the anger of others. And as wisdom will evidence itself in humility, so humility will be a great friend to wisdom. For nothing hinders the regular apprehension, the solid judgment and impartiality of thought necessary to our acting wisely so much as passion. When we are mild and calm, we are best able to hear reason and best able to speak it. Wisdom produces humility and humility increases wisdom. So here we see humility's relationship to wisdom. Now, what is humility? So a contemporary theologian, uh, J.D. Walt, and that's the next slide up here, says this. says, humility is tricky. As sure as you consider yourself a humble person, you can be sure you're not. What is humility? Sometimes to get at a word's meaning, it helps to consider its opposite. What do you think is the opposite of humility? The knee-jerk reaction answer, pride. I used to think of humility as thinking less of oneself. Later, I thought of it as thinking of oneself less. I'll read that again. I used to think of humility as thinking less of oneself. Later, I thought of it as thinking of oneself less. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 goes on with this. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So back to J.D. Walt. He continues. He says, According to Scripture, the opposite of humility is not pride, but selfishness. And therein lies the problem with our definitions. They are all self-referential. 
we can't even talk about humility without somehow referencing the self. Here's what I'm slowly learning. Humility is not about self at all. Humility is all about others. Humility is not putting yourself down. That's a false humility. Humility is about lifting others up. If I'm about me, I am selfish. If I'm about you, I am humble. I really do think it's that simple. So in order to show that you are wise and understanding by your good life and deeds, there has to be some humility involved in that. And so sometimes humility is just a hard word to grasp, a hard concept to understand. Here I think we've a little light shed on that through the passage in Philippians that it's other-focused. That is the one antidote to what I'm about to read next is the next verse. So we've just read, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show up by... Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Verse 14 says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So what is bitter envy and selfish ambition? Let's just use some definitions first. So envy, ambition. There's the the nouns involved here, or verb, depending on how you use it. Envy is this, desire to have a quality, possession, or other desirable attribute belonging to someone else. Desire to have a quality, possession, or other desirable attribute belonging to someone else. Ambition, desire and determination to achieve success. Well, those don't sound in themselves always so bad. Now, especially with envy. And another word used in some of your translations, it might be jealousy. And so I really looked into it. There's just, there are nearly interchangeable words. Now, sometimes we view jealousy as um, having to do with something that's yours and envy is having to do with something that's somebody else's. And so I've seen all these different definitions out there and use them as they're helpful. Uh, But really in scripture, jealousy actually can be a virtue. God is jealous A husband and a wife can be jealous for each other because they belong to each other. If it appears that someone else has them, we actually can be jealous. Uh, And then uh, in James 4, the next, very next chapter, 4 verse 5, it says, Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? I remember reading that thinking, what? I thought envy was just a bad thing. Yet there's something in us or about us that God envies intensely. He wants. Now, obviously, there's things God can do that we can't do. Uh, so part of that involves this. Now, ambition's easier. When it comes to ambition, you've got Paul saying, uh, he, I made it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. So again, envy, jealousy, ambition in themselves may not be a bad thing. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I don't think James is is telling us about that kind of envy uh, or ambition. Here it says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So selfish ambition is easier. It's a little more obvious. It's the envy or it's the desire and determination to achieve success for my own ends, for my glory. So that usually is more obvious. We all might recognize that temptation in us to, to have selfish ambition. Um, envy, though, uh, is probably something that's going to hit closer to home in that we, we do this. Uh, it says bitter envy. Uh, so 
So what, what usually comes before envy? Anybody? What comes before bitter? Well, in, the, in the process of our emotions, what comes before bitter? Anybody? Anybody at all? Anger, Anger right? Anger often comes before that. Uh, what comes before anger often? Comparison. Hmm? Comparison. Comparison. Desire. Desire. But even in terms of a negative emotion, well, well let, me, let me ask you this. You ever, had, you ever said, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated? Am I do that? So we have frustration. You can go on. We've got uh, irritation, impatience. I can't tell you how many times I've said that to my wife. I'm, I'm not angry right now. I'm just frustrated. And I'm really annoyed that you're pointing this out to me right, right now. So, so we, we know that there's sort of a, a progression. And all of our emotions, as we know, are kind of a slippery slope uh, to a certain end. And that end here is, is a bitter envy. In fact, you know, you've got James chapter 1 telling us that in 119, I think one of the most powerful scriptures that I think 93% of all of my sins would go away if I obeyed this one verse in James 119. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We, we all know that verse. It's probably one of the most well-known verses in, in the book of James. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Our anger eventually are going, is going to go down to, it's, it's going to start with irritation, impatience, frustration, then anger. It will eventually go to, to bitterness. And, and so when I look at bitter envy and selfish ambition, this is what it is. It's, I want what I want, and I'm angry that I can't have it right now. I want what I want, and I'm angry that I can't have it right now. That's what we do. That's what this verse is talking about. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny, it or deny the truth. So, so where does this come from? The next verse tells us, Such wisdom, in scarecrows, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Or in one version, of the devil. Anybody ever heard the phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil? I've heard it used all throughout my Christian faith, and, and they were always described as being the arch enemies of our soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And I always wonder, like, where, where in Scripture did that come from? It comes from right here. Such wisdom that we call wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is. So world, flesh, and the devil. Earthly, there's the world. Unspiritual, so it's fleshy, fleshly our sinful nature, and then demonic, it's of the devil. This passage tells us that there are forces in the world at work against us that want us to live in bitter envy and selfish ambition and to live in that kind of wisdom. So the world is just, you know, the ideas that set themselves up against God. All the ideas in the world, all the temptations that you have that come from out there. That, that's the world that, that, that you want to be like somebody else that you shouldn't be, or you want to take on an idea that really isn't scriptural. And then you've got unspiritual. You've got the flesh. That one's a little more obvious. It's in us. That's the one thing we can't escape. You, you have, is, even as a Christian, you have remaining sin in you. God is working from the moment you meet him to the moment that you meet him again. 
in glory, you're always going to be having some remaining sin left. There will come a point where that's all gone. And so part of our Christian life is learning to to conquer sin, die to the self. You know, you hear those phrases in the Christian life. That that's what we have to deal with is the flesh. And then we have the demonic. We don't talk a lot about devils and Satan and dark angels here in America. I think the enemy of our souls, the devil, has done a really good job of getting us to ignore him. If you go to other parts in the world, he works to get you to really believe in him, be f- afraid and recognize that there's spirits all over the place. So you sacrifice to idols and, you know, I've been in enough parts of the world where the devil's talked about quite a bit or, or dark spirits are talked about quite a bit. Again, here in America, we don't, you know, it's almost a goofy thing, you know, the way we, we talk about it. And so he gets success in our lives by getting us to forget that he's around or to ignore him. Um, but yet he's real. There are demons out there and we should know what God's word says about it. But the point is here is that the wisdom that we often operate with comes from these things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it goes on to say then, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So, so what does this look like in scripture and in our lives? You know, in our lives, we're told you can have your best life now, but we're often driven by, I want his best life now. Or they say that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, um, but they'd neglect to tell us that the water bill is also higher on the other side of the fence. We forget there's a cost to, to what we want, and sometimes that cost can be, our, can be our soul. And, you know, we who are generally considered to be the richest 1% of all of world history, you should be wary of this. In, in chapter 5, uh, we're going to go into some, we're going to hear some very strong words that James speaks about the rich. Whether we like it or not, we, we kind of live in that, in that world right now. But you know what? Envy and selfish ambition is not just something that the rich struggle with. It is because we have access to the resources to, you know, to, to really want really crazy, huge things. But when my wife and I and two children lived in Afghanistan for a year and, and got home. And I remember people coming up to us and saying, it must be hard to come back to America where everybody's so rich and wealthy and affluent and, and we have such greed here. And it immediately hit me. I thought, you know, envy and selfish ambition is an equal opportunity sin. It's everywhere. And I learned that is when we were working with the Afghan people over there, it doesn't matter how little you have. These, these are things that come deep up from within. You could lock somebody in a box and they will come up with ways to, uh, to create that, that envy, that want of what they don't have. So it's, it's everywhere. Now, in, in Scripture, we've got lots of stories. I'm going to ask you questions again. Give me some stories of jealousy, envy, and ambition in the Bible. Give, give, me, give me some titles here. What's that? Joseph's brothers. That's a good one. Cain and Abel. Any others? David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. Right? There are so many. The more I thought about it, I started writing them down. Cain and Abel, Joseph and his brothers, Jacob and Esau, James and John wanting to be on the special thrones on each side of of Jesus, the prodigal son and his older brother. It it just goes on and on. I realize that most of these, they're all brothers, actually. 
all of those were brothers. So you, you ladies are, you're, you're, you're off. You're, do, you're all right. So, no, I'm sorry. There actually are a couple. There's, there's Rachel and Leah. There's Mary and Martha. So, we've got so many stories of, of, of selfish ambition, of vain conceit, of, of wanting something that you, we don't have. And, and so that's the middle of this passage. That's the bad news. So we've got, from the beginning again, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Verse 14, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from, hev- from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So again, remember the problem. There's a battle within us between the wisdom from below and a wisdom from above. So I just talked about the wisdom that's from below. But in verse 17, it says, The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So this wisdom that we want one of the key markers of this one that we sometimes forget is that it comes from heaven. In, in, in the first chapter of James, in verse 5, it says, uh, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. This is the thing that should be the greatest relief for us. God gives us the wisdom. It's, that wisdom is not the wisdom that you hearing from me or us reading a book or listening to other sermons online or, or, or standing under, the, under great musical worship. None of those things bring wisdom. God is the one, like we can't generate up enough energy to get that wisdom. You can't study up enough to get that wisdom. It is from God. And like I said, that should take a burden off of our shoulders. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. We just heard about the, quote, wisdom that does not come from heaven. So here we've got a list. And whenever you see a list, I don't know about you, but sometimes I tend to just zip through lists in the Bible and just, yep, 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 yep. They're all pretty much the same. And I want to encourage you, since I don't have time to do it now, I'm going to go through each one of these, but... But I want to encourage you to take some time to write down each one of these on your own and to really meditate on if this really is the, the characteristic of true wisdom. Now, it does have something to do with you. It's, it's given from God, but you actually have to do something to get it. It's, it's, it's a weird paradox right there. So, because you can't read these things without realizing, oh, I have to do some things here. So it starts with, it is pure. It's without mixture, of anything that would debase it. It's, it doesn't include my opinions. It doesn't include my sins, my fears, but only what I know of God and his word. The more you read about God, the more you know and hear about God, there's a purity that can come. And then it says it's peace-loving. Peace follows purity and depends on it. Truly wise people try to preserve peace when it is present and to make peace where it has been lost. That's huge. Any of you who have children know how much time you spend trying to bring peace in your family, how you value that when there's peace. This is, true wisdom is peace loving. 
It's not just uh, uh, conflict escaping. That's not, that's not what true wisdom is. It's peace loving. You're going after it. Then it's considerate, thinking of others' thoughts and needs before your own. That's pretty clear. Submissive, submission to God's truth and his ways. And willing to submit or defer to others when appropriate. Men and women, the spirit of God is in each one of us. I've gained more in wisdom from my wife than anybody in this world. Just through her submitting to me and me submitting to her in terms of what God speaks through us. It's full of mercy and good fruit. Now, most of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. If you read through those, almost, not all of them, but most of them are other-focused. Some of them are just within you, the fruit that it really, in and of itself, might just affect you. But most of them have to do with others. You can't do them without having someone else in your life. So most of that is other-focused. The interesting here is it includes mercy. Now, mercy is a willingness to forgive those that offend, and because true wisdom knows that others are in this battle too. Because that's what we're going to keep coming back to is that, that we're in a battle that's not going to be won at the end of this sermon because you learned something. You're in a battle that's going to be ongoing. It's also impartial. The original word, adiakritos, signifies to be without suspicion or free from judging. Uh, making no undue surmises nor differences in our conduct towards one person more than another. It doesn't make assumptions. And then it is the last one here, sincere. Other translations say without hypocrisy. Uh, This kind of goes back really full circle to the word pure. You say what you mean. True wisdom says what it means and it it means what, what it says. And then it ends, the whole passage here ends in verse 18 with, with an interesting phrase that I probably had to think more about this one than any of the verses. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. The more I thought about it, the more I looked at it, I was, well, how does that fit? It already mentioned peace-loving in the list. But it ends with peacemakers who sow in peace. It really is sort of describing the person who has true wisdom as a peacemaker. So there's your summary Description is that they're a peacemaker, but what do they do? They sow in peace and then they reap a harvest of righteousness. So, right again, this is one of those things that's other focused. If you're reaping a harvest of righteousness outside of you, well, inanimate objects aren't going to be righteous. So, you are involved with other people in your life. In the school that, that our family runs, we, we have a concept. Uh, that we use called tribal levels. And it's a way that we can sort of get a pulse on how we're doing as a, as a group. If we could put that slide up. I don't know how well you can see it here. But this is kind of the way we often think. This is in your family. This could be in your workplace. This could be in your school. And I'm going to say a bad word here, so kids cover your ears. Life sucks. That's what, that's the... The despairing and, and, and the, the worst, you know, it's, it's a, a dis- despairing anger. That's sometimes what we think. All of life sucks. But then the, the next level up from there is my life sucks. You're just, you're a victim then. You're just playing the victim. And then we go to the next one. I'm great, but you're not. <laughs> I'm great, but you're not. 
Now, probably the vast majority of the world kind of floats between level three and level four. I'm great, you're not, or we're great and they're not. Now, where do we see level four happen? We see this all the time. We see this in politics. We see this in sports. We see this in the church. But these are kind of tribal levels. And sometimes we bond over the things that we agree with, right? And in one sense, that could be a good thing. But how it relates to the harvest of righteousness that we're really after here, you have to get to tribal level five. You have to get to the place where it is, life is great. It's not just we are great. I mean, I want that for my kids. I want that for my family. I want that in my workplace. We are great. But I know that we've really arrived and we're sowing seeds of righteousness when we are saying life is great. I want to have an impact on this world. I've been given a mission. And that, that really is the culmination of what this wisdom is all about. But again, we still have this problem, right? Our problem is, let's put that one up. Our problem is there is a battle within us between the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. So then we got to get to the solution. What is the solution to this? So there's really three parts that I want to talk about when it comes to the solution to the battle that we're in. Um, I don't know if we have this up here, but the first one is hopefully obvious. It's to recognize the differences between them. So we've just talked about some of the differences between the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. So just recognition, just like anything. You don't get to repentance until you confess and are aware of your own sin. You don't know that you need Jesus until you recognize certain realities about yourself. So recognizing the differences between those things. Number two is be who you are in order to reveal who you are. Now, so much of James is do this and do this and and don't do that. And they're all good things that we're supposed to take on in our life, but we don't want to get the order wrong. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the phrase in theology, they use the word indicatives and imperatives. So the indicatives are the things that indicate who you are. The imperatives are, you hear the word, it's imperative that you do this. So imperatives have to, uh, the commands. So we often get those backwards. Like, like the first slide I showed was we believe and then we oh, behave. We try to do a bunch of stuff so that Jesus will be happy with us and that the church will see me as a good and healthy Christian and then I'll feel like I really belong. So we get, we get the imperatives first. And you do that long enough and you become the people that Jesus spoke most strongly against in the Bible was the Pharisees. They knew all the right stuff, but they didn't really have a relationship. Jesus said, I never knew you. We, we've got to be known first. So we have to remember that you are a child of God. If you've believed in Jesus, if you've confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that that, that Jesus has saved you from your sins, he rose from the dead and he invites you to do the same in eternity, then you are a blood-bought Christian. You are one who has been loved. You are all of these things. Uh, and then we learn about the behavior. Then we learn about all the things that we're to do. Um, the third one is to build on the foundation. So Ephesians chapter 2 talks about our work. 
So I just talked about remembering who we are, but we can't forget about what we're to do. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. In 1 Corinthians, if you are look following with me in the Bible, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read a little section of this as we close up here. In 1 Corinthians 3, chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, but, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal, for there for there are for where there are envy strife remember those words and divisions among you are you not carnal and behaving like mere men but then he goes on in chapter 10 he says um, verse 10 i'm sorry chapter 3 verse 10 he says according to the grace of god which was given to me as a wise master builder i have laid the foundation and another builds on it but let each one take heed how he builds on it For no other foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is the foundation I'm talking about. Verse 12, it says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures... He will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It's important to remember that the moment we meet Jesus, that foundation is laid just like that. And from that point on, we're building. We always have to remember the foundation. But we're always having to to build on it. So the gold, silver, and precious stones, those are the things that last. That's the true wisdom That's the battle that you're going to face every day. Do I operate in true wisdom, the wisdom from above, or do I operate in the wisdom from below, the selfish ambition and and the the bitter envy? And we can also build with wood, hay, straw. So one way or another, we're going to build on our Christian faith. And at the end, yes, some of us may have just the foundation left. It's just with Jesus that we're getting through the pearly gates. And that's... Good news, really, because for many of us, we just, we feel broken and we feel weak and we feel we can't do it. Now that's what we have a community for where we can urge one another on and we can keep pushing one another to do good works. But we want to do those good works not so that we can get to him, but because he already has accepted us. We want to be who we are. Um, if you If you work you got to work for the right reason. So therefore, work. Spend your energy like crazy on good works. But just know that they're his good works. If you can remember that, you can work really, really hard to do all the things that are listed here. Be pure, be peace-loving, be considerate. All of those things you can do because they're his good works and he gets the credit, not you. So if we want to put that slide up again that listed the two perspectives, we've got earthly wisdom on the left. Believe and then behave. We've got 
heavenly wisdom on the right. Believe, belong, become, and behave. That, that's what we need to remember as we're reading through the book of James, this letter that James wrote, because it is so full of action. We will have a tendency to want to just follow a bunch of rules and not really uh, do it from a heart that, is, that, that knows him, that it's in relationship with him. So with the way I want to end this here is, is to remind us of, of what Jesus said. I want to let Jesus have the, the last word. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, I love this part, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Now I read that word wise in a different way. Because why would he hide those things from the people he wants to be wise? He says, you've hidden those things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. That's us. That's who we want to be is the little children. And then he says in verse 28, he says, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. on On a day like today, you know, isn't this what you need to hear? I mean, you... You wake after a little sleep. Uh, you, you prepare for another hard day at work. Uh, you, you feel the weight of the responsibility. You, you feel pulled every which way by the people you're responsible for. Uh, and then you get, go to bed wondering if, if it will be recognized. And then there's the men and, and all the work they do. We need to recognize that <clears throat> we need rest. We must have that. And he goes on and he says, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that that you have provided us the ultimate promise of rest in the midst of our battle. You have not promised to remove the battle from us, uh, but you have promised to equip us with wisdom that we need in every day of our life. I pray that as we seek to follow your ways, as we seek to know you more, I pray that we would truly live in a way that honors you, but we would do so out of sincerity. We would do so knowing the truth of who we are and that we belong and that our behavior, even that, our success in that behavior will be a result of your gift to us. We thank you for all these things and